0: Welcome to Unlearn to Learn, a podcast brought to you by the World Obesity Federation. I'm your host, Alexander. I'm the Education Manager at World Obesity, and in my role as Manager of Scope E-Learning, I oversee the development of resources to improve the care and treatment of patients with obesity. In this series, I'll be speaking with some of the most experienced medical practitioners from all over the world. Across nine episodes, we'll be examining the prevention, treatment and care of obesity, by busting myths and focusing on the science behind obesity treatment and management. Whether you're a medical student, a practitioner, or simply have an interest in obesity and public health, there's something to be learned here. So join us. Let's get started. Across the podcast, we've established that obesity is nothing if not a complex disease. Studies have shown that obesity is multifactorial, and everything from socioeconomic factors to poor mental health can contribute to the ever-increasing rise of cases over the years. With its pinpoint precision and set of diagnostic tools, modern technology has allowed researchers to explore how genetics play a role in causing obesity, advancing our understanding of the molecular mechanisms of weight gain and regulation significantly. On today's episode of Unlearn to Learn, we'll be taking a closer look at the relationship between obesity and genetics. We'll be taking a look at how genetics and biology can interact with other factors, such as environment, in increasing a patient's risk of obesity. We'll also be exploring the science behind the leptin hormone and its relationship to weight regulation. With that being said, let's get into the episode. Today, I'm joined by Professor Sadaf Faruqi, consultant physician at Addenbrookes Hospital and professor of metabolism and medicine at Cambridge University in the UK. Within her extensive career, Professor Faruqi's research into obesity and its relationship to genetics has fundamentally altered our understanding of the disease of obesity. Her work, which was vital in the discovery of the first genetic mutations that cause human obesity, continues to help define and characterize genetic obesity syndromes across the industry. Outside of this, Professor Faruqi is a Wellcome Trust Senior Research Fellow in Clinical Science, and is committed to translating her research into patient benefit and well-being, helping to change clinical attitudes and diagnostic practice globally. Professor Faruqi, it's truly a pleasure to have you with us on today's podcast, welcome. Thank you very much, great to be here. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to start with a very broad question. How important are genetics in determining body weight and a person's risk of developing obesity? So
1: genetics plays a considerable role in influencing how much weight people gain. And this often surprises people because we know, of course, that the reason why as a population we're getting heavier is our environment has changed over the last 30 to 40 years. We're eating more calories than we used to and we're generally less active. But underneath that, there's a lot of variation in how much weight people gain in a given environment. Some people are much more likely to gain weight and struggle with their weight throughout their lives. Other people can eat what they like and remain slim. And we now know that the large part of the explanation for that variation amongst people is genetics. Now, the way that we know that is really by classical studies of twins. So if you look at identical twins who, even if they're separated at birth and live in completely different environments, have a really similar body weight as adults. There's another piece of evidence that comes from children who were adopted. They tend to have weights that are very similar to their biological parents and rather different from the adoptive parents with whom they share the childhood environment. So quite a few studies have collectively shown that if you take any two people, 40 to 70% of the variation in their weight is due to variation in their genes.
0: Interesting. Okay. And how widely accepted is this genetic basis to obesity? Because I know there is a prevailing narrative that lifestyle is the predominant factor in causing obesity. Do people accept the idea that genes are one of the major factors? Well, I think people have
1: traditionally found it a little difficult, but the evidence is very clear cut. And I think you know scientifically, there's no doubt. It's been shown consistently in many studies uh, around the world and, of course, has been further. It's not just assumed, it's now evidenced by the fact that certain genes have been shown to cause obesity when they're disrupted. So there is actually no doubt about this. Genetic factors play a strong role in influencing our weight. Environment is also important, and our genes influence how we respond to the environment. So if people will eat more, the amount of weight they gain will be influenced by their genes. So it's really not a black and white. It's really shades of gray. Both genes and environment are important.
0: So how do genes actually influence weight then?
1: Well, in everybody, genes influence their weight, but there are certain genes which are really having a major effect. So in people who really struggle with their weight, particularly from a young age, where maybe children have gained a lot of weight and struggle with their weight, they can have major genes that are not functioning. So we often would think of these as monogenic disorders. So a single gene in which a mutation or a fault in the gene stops it from working and causes severe obesity. So that's one end of the spectrum. Then in many people in the population, you have common genetic variants. And by common, I mean the change in the gene might be found in at least 5% of people. And those variants, when you add them up, you can actually measure their effect in a score. And some people who have a high score will be the people who tend to gain weight very easily and find it hard to lose weight. There are other people who have a low score, they have a low burden of those genes or changes in the genes, and they will tend to be normal weight and often not struggle with their weight. And then if you go right to the other end of the spectrum of weight, there are some people who have a really low count of those genes. Okay, they're quite lucky because they actually don't put on weight. They're protected from obesity. So really, genes can influence us right across the spectrum, right the way from increasing your tendency to even causing obesity if one single gene is defective.
0: Okay. And this may be a very obvious question, but for someone like me with no knowledge of genetics, how do we measure the impact of genes? How is that actually measured and qualified? Of course, we can
1: look at specific genes and we can do that with something called sequencing, where you can look at a particular sequence or the code of a gene. Gene is like a very long word. And if one letter in that word is misspelt, then it's incorrectly spelt and the gene often doesn't function. Sometimes the spelling doesn't really change the function of the gene. So we can read the sequence of the gene, and that would be sequencing, and we can test how the change in a gene affects its function in a lab. And that's been done now for quite a few different genes. And it's really that body of work that has allowed us to understand that if there are certain genes which aren't functioning properly, that will contribute to someone gaining weight And where the other genes, those that play a really important role, if they're not functioning properly, someone is very likely to be obese.
0: Okay, okay, very interesting. I wondered now, um, Sadaf, if you may give us a bit of an overview about some of the research that you've conducted over your career. So I know you've done a lot of research, for example, into mutations in genes and how they impact encoding leptin and receptors like the MC4R. Could you maybe please give us a brief overview of some of your findings?
1: Yeah, so what the very first gene in which we found a defect or a mutation was the gene encoding the hormone leptin. Now, this is going back to 1997. And at that time, we were beginning to realize that there could be some biological factors that regulate weight, but we knew nothing actually about the system that controls weight. So, for example, we knew that there's a system for reproduction and for growth, but no one knew at the time uh, how weight is regulated. So, what we discovered is that Colleagues in New York, Jeff Friedman, actually at the Rockefeller, discovered a hormone called leptin. And he found the hormone leptin by studying mice that were severely obese and he found were lacking this hormone. And they were lacking the hormone because they had a mutation in the gene that encodes that hormone. And then he showed by giving the mice back leptin, you could correct their obesity, proving that it was the lack of leptin that was doing it. So that was in 1994. And then in 1997, We studied some children who were severely obese, a two year old weighing 28 kilos and an eight year old weighing 86 kilos. And they were from a a family in the UK of Pakistani origin. The parents were consanguineous. And we found those children had homozygous mutations in the gene that encodes leptin. And so, like those mice, the children had no circulating levels of leptin, the hormone in the blood. And that was the cause of their obesity. And then we embarked upon a clinical trial to give those children back injections of leptin and showed that actually it had a dramatic benefit and they've lost a substantial amount of weight and are now doing very well. So that was really the proof that leptin is important in humans and is a key part of a system that regulates weight. Over the following few years, people did a lot of studies in mice trying to map the neurons in the brain which respond to leptin to regulate weight. And then we showed that as those findings were emerging in mice, they were equally relevant in people because people who had mutations in those genes in the pathway were also developing obesity. And so what we learned with all of that information together is that leptin comes from your fat actually, and is telling your brain about how much nutrients you have stored. And if your levels of leptin are low... In these children, or if someone is fasting, for example, or starving, then that sends a signal to the brain to eat more. And that signal is detected by specific neurons in a region of the brain called the hypothalamus, which then tell you to eat. And those neurons will either tell you to eat, or if you've eaten and you're full, will tell you to stop eating. And a key gene in that pathway that tells you to stop eating after a meal is the melanocortin-4 receptor, or MC4R. Now, MC4-R is important because that's the gene in which we find the most different mutations or variants in people with obesity. If we look at children with severe obesity, 5% will have mutations or changes in the melanocortin 4 receptor. If you look at just random people in the population, 1 in 330 people will have a change in the MC4 receptor, and that's enough to cause them to gain weight throughout childhood. So that's really how finding these genes has paved the way for understanding that genes contribute to weight, but also for understanding the pathway by which those genes work and a pathway that regulates weight in all of us.
0: Okay, that's really fascinating. And it's amazing to hear that as a direct result of that research, you're actually able to ascribe treatment solutions that actually really help people with obesity.
1: Yeah, that's been great. I mean, we've been very fortunate to have the opportunity to do that. And really, as we discovered leptin deficiency uh, around that time, a company was making recombinant leptin and we were able to then run a clinical trial and show that it was effective. And now, fast forward many years, it's actually licensed for this relatively rare disorder. And then really the finding of mutations in the melanocortin-4 receptor proved that it could really also be a very useful drug target. A number of companies then started trying to develop drugs that were stimulating the MC4 receptor agonists, because that would mean you would stimulate the pathway that tells you to eat less after a meal, which would be quite a handy thing to do. Now, the first generation of drugs that were developed targeting MC4R did have an effect on weight, but unfortunately, they also increased blood pressure. So then that wasn't very helpful. But there's now a second generation of drugs that target the MC4 receptor, and they cause weight loss without changing blood pressure. So we're now giving those in clinical trials to people with different genetic conditions affecting this pathway. And actually it's had very good effect in a couple of those genetic conditions and is already moving through to being licensed, and I hope will be soon something we can treat patients uh, in the NHS.
0: Okay, that's really encouraging. You mentioned in some of the studies that you've done that you were looking originally at mice. I'm interested in the extent to which studies in mice can be translated to human beings. To what extent is the genetic profile of mice similar to the genetic profile of human beings?
1: It's been quite surprising. When it comes to obesity and the system for weight regulation, mice have proved to be a really useful model. So, you know, we wouldn't have known about the hormone leptin and where to look if it wasn't for those mice. Uh, And then really that led to our understanding of this pathway. So the pathway is highly conserved across species. Something like the MC4R gene is at least 90% identical in mice and humans. So probably because it's such a fundamental system, the genes, the key components of that system are very similar between mice and humans.
0: Okay, interesting. And I think that will come as a surprise to many people.
1: Yes, it will. I mean, it's different depending on the region of physiology. So it's less clear cut, for example, with lipid metabolism. So with lipid metabolism, there are big changes between mice and humans, so it's it's not so helpful. In insulin resistance, there are quite a few changes between mice and humans. But actually, when it comes to weight regulation and obesity, there are a lot of similarities.
0: Interesting. So I'd also like to ask about gene therapy. So could this be a treatment option for patients living with obesity?
1: So gene therapy is having a bit of a renaissance now. Um, There was a lot of excitement, I would say, maybe 10, 15 years ago, that gene therapy could be very effective for a number of inherited diseases but there were quite a lot of technical challenges which proved you know often too much to overcome but those things are being solved now and gene therapy is certainly a possibility for many inherited diseases and i think that also applies to severe obesity particularly driven when it's driven by a single gene disorder so for example with leptin if we didn't have recombinant leptin which we're giving to people then gene therapy for leptin would be an option because leptin is just made by your fat. So you could get someone's fat cells to make normal levels of leptin with gene therapy that would treat that condition. So it is a possibility for other disorders. Many of them affect the brain. And so it's a little challenging to to know which area of the brain and target that specifically. But as science moves on, we're getting a much better idea about that. And using stereotactic MRI colleagues are beginning to deliver targeted gene therapy into very specific parts of the brain. And I can see that as a future option for some people with very severe obesity.
0: Okay. And what role would lifestyle interventions play in people receiving gene therapy?
1: So the issue of lifestyle interventions and, and treatments is often one that causes some confusion. The thing I think to be really clear is that when we're talking with, about people with severe obesity, That's the group of people I'm talking about, the people who would have these genetic conditions causing their obesity or driving most of their obesity. Usually people have been on diet and exercise for their whole lives, and it's done very little. And it's done very little because the biology is driving their obesity, and it makes very little difference about how much you eat. And just as an example, you know, I have patients referred to me from Sudan, from rural Malaysia, from rural India and Pakistan. These are not people who have any access to fast food or junk food, and yet they still have very severe obesity. So I think it's been a something that people have struggled to come to terms with a little bit, I think as professionals, but I think is a really important point. When it comes to severe obesity, of course we should give people advice about diet and activity, but we must recognise the strong role that biology plays, and therefore people with severe obesity need treatment, as they would do for any other condition. There's a close parallel here with, say, if you think about asthma, we know that pollution and smoking are not very good if you have asthma. But if someone has severe chronic asthma, just telling them to stay out of the pollution or away from the smoke is not going to treat or improve their lives with severe asthma. You need medical therapy to tackle the condition. So I think when it comes to both gene therapy and medical therapies and indeed bariatric surgery, you know, those are treatments for people who have already tried and in whom diet and exercise are often ineffective. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not effective and helpful in the general population. They are. And I think the way to think about strategies for obesity is to recognize that we need at least broadly two strategies. We need treatments and medical care for people with severe obesity, and then we need policy changes for the population where small changes in how much we eat and how much activity we do can help to improve people's health and reduce their risk of developing complications from obesity.
0: Mm, I really like that analogy regarding asthma. And I think it ties into a theme that's come up in pretty much all the episodes on this series, which is that regardless of what many people think, for most people, it's not simply a case of eat less and move more. There's far more to it than that.
1: Absolutely. And I think that that's why we've been struggling. We have not been able to tackle or reduce our prevalence rates of obesity because we've taken a very simplistic approach and assumed that everybody will just follow that advice and can follow that advice. And of course, there are many reasons. Genetics is a major one, but of course, there are other societal and other reasons why it's quite hard to follow that advice
0: sometimes. Mm, Absolutely. So I've heard about this idea of genetic risk scores. So could you please explain those and what the implications are for how we manage obesity at a population level?
1: So this is very much a a hot topic at the moment. And it's emerged because after many years, we now have the technology to be able to look at thousands, in fact, millions of genes and genetic variants. And because we can do that computationally, we can add up the effect of many, many different variants to create a score. And this has just been shown in the last couple of years, and now research is ongoing to find out if you have a high score, does that predict your risk of obesity? Certainly in some population cohorts, that seems to be the case. What we don't know is could that be clinically useful? If we found that some people have a high risk score, that would give us a better understanding for the fact that their obesity is going to be quite hard to treat and manage, and we may be able to fast track them towards certain kinds of interventions. So I think that's really going to be very much an area for the future, is trying to understand how useful polygenic risk scores are for predicting not only who develops obesity, but who develops obesity-related complications.
0: Okay, so it sounds like it's a really exciting time in terms of some of the things we're discovering.
1: Yeah, I think we really are at the... Next frontier in obesity research. You know, we've gone in the last 25 years from knowing nothing about how weight is regulated to understanding the pathway, to understanding the role of genes play alongside environment and societal factors, to also now having treatments for people with severe obesity. And I hope that we will increasingly be able to find ways to improve people's lives through our clinical care. But also really important is to tackle the stigma that goes with severe obesity. A lot of people are blamed for causing their obesity. And I think that the healthcare professionals of the future really need to have a much more enlightened view, recognising the science that underlies the development of obesity.
0: Completely agree. And I think knowing that genetic underpinning to obesity is a first step towards hopefully eradicating that stigma that surrounds obesity, not just among the general population, but even among healthcare professionals.
1: Yes, it's really, really important that we tackle that stigma. You know, several studies have been done that shown that 40 to 60% of people with obesity report experiencing bias or discrimination from their healthcare professionals. And that's really bad for many reasons, bad because it makes people feel miserable and it massively affects their lives. But also people are less likely to engage with healthcare professionals, and actually they do worse clinically. They are more likely to develop complications, and they're less likely to benefit from weight loss interventions. So for all kinds of reasons, we really need to tackle and address and remove the stigma associated with obesity.
0: That's a really shocking statistic, actually. When you said 40 to 60%, I thought you were going to say 40 to 60% of people with obesity have experienced stigma in general. But from healthcare professionals... It's really shocking that the figure is that high.
1: Yeah, it's very high. And actually, that's been shown for all healthcare professionals. Unfortunately, doctors do worst. But it's been shown for nurses, dieticians, psychologists, lots of different professional groups.
0: Gosh, that is is concerning. So unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up soon. But before we do, this is obviously a really in-depth topic. And I think there's a lot more to explore. Where can our listeners go to learn more about the impact of genetics on obesity?
1: Uh, So we have a a website, www.goose.org.uk. So we have a lot of information on there, including quite a few papers, uh, some more videos, some material that can be uh, accessed. And we're hoping to work with other partners to now find ways to disseminate this information more widely.
0: Fantastic. Well, we'll have to leave it there. But Professor Faruqi, thank you once again so much for joining us and sharing your insights. We really appreciate you giving your time to speak to us today. So thank you. And thank you also to all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, I've been Alexander. I've been the education manager at World Obesity. And this has been the Unlearn to Learn podcast. This was actually our final episode of the series. So thank you for coming with us on this journey over the last nine episodes. There's so much to go into and unpack. So why not go back to our previous episodes, which are all available now on whatever you use to listen to your podcasts. So it's been a great journey. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time.